All right. Well, today is Palm Sunday. If anybody doesn't know that, today is, uh, we call it in the church calendar, Palm Sunday. And it's the day that we remember when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, and all the people of Jerusalem put palm branches before the donkey. And what they were doing there is they were, there is they were recognizing that Jesus Christ was their king. And that's what we do on Palm Sunday, is we, we take a Sunday and remind ourselves that Jesus Christ is not only the king of the world, but he is our true king. And on Palm Sunday, we ask the question, not so much, what do I want for my life, but rather, what does Jesus Christ want for my life? Not so much what I desire for the situations in my world, but, but what does Jesus Christ desire for the world? And because of that, John 17, what we're going to look at today, is, is a perfect chapter to look at on Palm Sunday, because John 17 is a remarkable passage, because in it we have a prayer of Jesus. Uh, this is the one and only place where you have an extended a prayer of Jesus Christ recorded in the Bible. And in it we get a glimpse into the inner life of the relationship that Jesus had with his Father. And we also see what Jesus Christ desires for us. Uh, you know, my, my grandmother, uh, I'll tell you a story about my grandmother to start out here, but my grandmother, she was, she was known for her prayers. So in the family, she was known that, that she, for just being a person of incredible prayer. And uh, she had a little journal, and she would pray for all of the family, the, the children, the grandchildren, and, and everybody and everything, and just kept journal after journal. And when she died several years ago, uh, she gave us all permission to look into those journals, and it was such a unique opportunity. We got a glimpse into what my grandmother was praying for us. And so I, I got a hold of it, and I flipped to the middle of the journal, and I looked at, you know, looked at my name, and I was kind of, what is my grandma praying for me? What, did she, what, did, what was she there uh, praying about? And I looked, and there it just said, you know, my name, Brent, and it just said, Dear Lord, help Brent. <laughs> Not going to lie, it was a little bit of a letdown. <laughs> And, you know, this was my 20s, so I had some issues, but my grandmother was just praying for help. This is what she wanted for me. This is what she desired for me. And this prayer that Jesus prays is what Jesus desires for his church. This is what King Jesus wants for us. Haven't you ever wondered that? What, is, what would Jesus pray for me if, I, if, he, if he prayed for me? And he does. What, what does he pray? What does Jesus want for his church? Well, John 17 is a picture of that. Now, in the prayer, you can divide it into three different sections, Jesus begins by pray, praying for himself, and then he prays for his disciples, the, the 12 that were in his immediate circle. But towards the end of the prayer, he prays for uh, future generations of Christians that will come after him. And so in verse 20 of chapter 17, it says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He's saying, I'm not just praying for these only, my 12 disciples, but for all of those who will believe in me in the future. And so if you ever seen the TV show, This Is Us, verse 20, you could title it, This Is Us. This is Jesus' prayer for all of us. And what does he pray for? Verse 21, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. So what does Jesus pray for? What does Jesus desire for us? 
In one word, Jesus prays for unity. He says it several times. I pray that they, my people, would be one, that they would be united. Now, immediately, this raises a question. Because when you look down the centuries at the church, we haven't been all that united, have we? I mean, the church has been marked often by, by splits and divisions and difficulties. I, Philip Yancey has a book called The Unanswered Prayers of Jesus. And he says that John 17 is an unanswered prayer of Jesus. Because when you look down the, through the centuries, we haven't been one. As, he has been, and him and, as him and the Father are one. We haven't been united. There's been all sorts of splits in God's church. What is Jesus praying for here? What does he mean by this? Especially when you look at all the different denominations in the world today. I looked on, on Wikipedia, which of course is the source of all true information about, <laughs> about the church, and it said that in the world today, there are 30,000 different denominations. 30,000 different denominations. Are we one even as Jesus Christ and the Father are one? Are we united? Is this an answered prayer? Many of us are, are just struggling because of divisions, struggling because of factions and, and exclusion and, and uh, uh, you know, relational fracture in the church. And so what does Jesus mean when he prays that we may be one? We need to look at this. This is a really, really important prayer. It's what Jesus desires for us. And so today I want to break the prayer down into three different pieces. Number one, we're going to see the nature of the unity that Jesus prays for. What does he mean when he prays that we would be one? Number two, why does he pray this? We're going to see the purpose of unity. What, what is the reason for the unity? And then number three, we're going to see what is the power that we have for unity. So the nature, the purpose, and the power of unity. Let's look at the first thing. So the nature of unity. He says, I pray that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are, me and, are in me and I, in, I am in you, that all, notice, may be one. All one. If Jesus prays for unity, what kind of unity does he have in mind? What kind of unity is he looking for? Well, first we've got to see what he's not necessarily looking for. I don't think that Jesus is praying here for a merger of all the denominations, uh, necessarily. He's not praying that for a, a visible structural unity, you know, that all the, the denominations would, would merge together. And we know this because, uh, you know, later on, Jesus says that the purpose of this unity is so that people may believe in Jesus, that it would be a radical, powerful thing. And I don't know that structural unity would be all that amazing. You know, think about it. Amazon just bought Whole Foods. Is anyone looking to, at, at them and saying, behold how they love one another? Right, what Jesus is praying here for is something far deeper than a denominational merger. He's also not praying for uniformity. A uniformity uh, is another word to describe sameness. He's not saying that he wants the church to be all the same. I want everybody to look alike and dress alike and believe every jot and tittle the same. I want, I want them all to be, you know, wear the same Christian t-shirts or whatever. He's not talking about a a uniformity or a sameness. He's not praying that God would erase all the differences. You know, this is not, this would actually not be very desirable. Miroslav Volf talks about the coercive discourses of sameness. Things like ethnic cleansing. Things like Nazi Germany were the result of a certain sort of unity, right? They wanted to rid their nation of all difference. We want everybody Aryan. 
We want everybody white. We want everybody the same. This is actually not what Jesus is praying for, that everybody would be the same. That's actually not desirable. In fact, there is a sinful desire to eliminate all difference. You know, I cannot tolerate the other. I cannot stand that you are different than me. And so I want you to go away. (laughs) You know, I only want to let those people into my group that, that believe like I do, that look like I do, that dress like I do. Jesus Christ is not praying for uniformity. He's not praying for the elimination of all difference. In fact, what Jesus is praying for here is almost the exact opposite of that. What he's praying for is not uniformity, but unity and diversity. Jesus is not praying that God would erase all the differences between his followers, but that the differences that normally divide them in the world would not be the basis of division in the church. So look at the passage. There are two words in there. I want you to circle, if you circle things in your Bible, uh, circle the word all. If you don't circle, nobody's circling anything. Uh, If you don't circle anything in your Bible, just circle it in the Bible of the person next to you. (laughs) Circle the word all. And then circle the word one. This is exactly the unity that Jesus is praying for. A unity in diversity. All of us are different. Jesus wants us to be united even in light of the differences. He doesn't want to erase all the things that distinguish us and differentiate us. He wants there to be a a unity infinitely deeper than our differences. And so uh, look at the person next to you and say, you are different. And then look at the person behind you and say, you are really, really different. (laughs) And now look at the person next to you and say, but we are one. We are different, but we are one. This is exactly the unity that Jesus is praying for, a unity in diversity, a group of every tongue, tribe, and nation, a, a group of people that are incredibly diverse, and yet despite all of their diversity, all of their difference, they are united on a level infinitely deeper than any difference they may have. This is the unity that Jesus is praying for. This is the thing that Jesus was about in the world, actually. So from the very beginning, Jesus was drawing together a community. Uh, You know, he started with 12 disciples, and then it grew. And notice that Jesus doesn't bring together people that all were the same. In fact, what's noticeable is that Jesus drew together people that were incredibly different. And so, for example, he had one disciple who was a zealot. And zealots were people that hated the Romans. They hated people that were in collusion with the Romans, that, uh, you know, sided with the Romans. And then he he hired, or he hired, he, (laughs) he brought in a tax collector. And a tax collector was the exact opposite of a zealot. He was in collusion with the Romans. He was collecting taxes from the Romans. And these two people would have hated each other in the culture. You know, the zealot would have wanted to kill the tax collector, but Jesus brings them together in unity. Jesus is already doing it with his 12 disciples. And then in the early church, we see that the gospel was all about translation. One historian says that Christianity was the first multi-ethnic religion. Up to that time, religions were mostly uh, bound up in culture and ethnicity. You know, certain ethnicities, certain cultures had certain religions. But Christianity was the first multi-ethnic religion. Jew and Gentile are brought together in one. Circumcised and uncircumcised were brought together in one. Uh, One historian said that translation was at the heart of the gospel. From the very beginning, the early Christians were translating the message 
first into Greek, and then into African religions, and then across the whole world. Uh, at the heart of Christianity is translation because it is a multi-ethnic religion. Jesus wants a unity in diversity. Not just a religion that's made up of one ethnicity. And then uh, later on in the book of Revelation, we see that this is God's plan at the very end. So Revelation uh, chapter 7 verse 9 says this. Uh, this is John. This is at the very end of the world. And John has a glimpse, glimpse into the heavenly future and the future world. And this is what he sees. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. What is Palm Sunday about? Well, here's a picture of King Jesus. This is the future world. This is when it all, you know, is, is wrapped up. It's King Jesus surrounded by a group of people from every tribe, every language, every nation. This is where the world is heading. This is God's plan for his people. It's to create a, a radically diverse community, a community of every tribe, every nation, and every language, all gather, gathered around the universal king, Jesus. I had a friend when I was growing up. He was an African-American guy. His name was Chinua Ford. And uh, he was at our church, which is mostly white. He was one of the few African-Americans in our congregation. And uh, Chinua, he loved our church. Our church loved him. And, but he said, he said to me one time, he said, Brett, you have no idea what it's like to be an African-American in this church. And he said, people love me. I know that they love me, and I know that they m mean well. But one time a guy came up to me, and he said, Chinua, isn't it going to be great that in heaven we're all going to be the same? And Chinua corrected the man and said, that's not true. Gathered around the throne are people of every color, every tribe, every nation, every language. Unity and diversity is the picture of our ultimate future. So this is Jesus' prayer. This is Jesus' desire for us. And notice that it's a reflection of the Trinity itself. So uh, Jesus says, I pray that they are one, even as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. I pray that they would be one, Jesus says, even as we are one. Do you realize this, that our God is a unity and diversity? We do not serve a God who is unipersonal. We, we serve a, a, a God who is three in one, unity and diversity. And so we reflect God when we are a unity and diversity. When we all are not monochromatic, but we are different. And yet what unites us is infinitely deeper than what divides us. Miroslav Volf concludes this way. He says, The Spirit does not want to erase differences, but allows access into one body of Christ to the people with such differences on the same terms. Tim Keller puts it another way. He says, Our relationship to each other in Christ is to be stronger than our relationship to other members of our racial and national groups. When you become a Christian, you are not primarily from Ohio or Germany or Asia. You are not primarily Anglo, African-American, Asian, or Hispanic. You are not primarily white-collar or blue-collar. You are a citizen of God's nation. In other words, you are a Christian first and white second. You are a Christian first and college-educated second. You are a Christian first an American second. 
You are a Christian first, you see. We are a diverse community that is united by something infinitely deeper than our differences. We are all, we are one, and this is Jesus' prayer for us. But why does Jesus pray this? Why is this so important? And this is really important. You know, this is a prayer that Jesus prays just hours before he was crucified. You know, when you're in the last hours of your life, and, you've, and the words are scarce. You are very economical about what you say. And so this is Jesus' prayer. This is the one thing that he prays before he dies, that we would be one. Why does he pray? Why is this so crucial? Why does Jesus pray this prayer? Why is unity so important? Well, I want you to see that unity has a, an evangelistic function. Notice he says in verse 21 that they all may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be one so that the world may believe that the world may believe that you sent me. And then later on in verse 23, he says, and I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. And so the reason for our unity is, is evangelistic. Jesus is saying, I want you to be one because when you are one, when my people are united in diversity, then the world will believe. Then the world will know that you sent me. And so the book of John is a very evangelistic book. So John writes the book all about Jesus. And at the very end of the book, he says, here's why I've written this book. This is why I've written all of these things down. And there are so many more things that, I've, that I could have written down about Jesus. But here's the reason why I write down what I did. So that the world may know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that the world may believe that I have sent him. That's the reason for John's book. And here Jesus, John says, this is the reason also for the church's unity. He says, I want you to be one even as I and the Father are one. I want you to be perfectly united. Why? So that the world may know and the world may believe that Jesus Christ has been sent by the Father. The purpose, in other words, of our unity is apologetic. So what ap apologetic, it's a fancy word. It is, it's a legal term, and it essentially means an argument. It's, a, it's, it's to wage an argument and to convince people of a certain truth. And what Jesus is saying here is that unity is the apologetic of Christian faith. Yeah, of course arguments are important. Of course we need to study and present an answer for, to everyone and give them reasons for what we believe. And yet, Jesus says, here's the final apologetic. He says, I want your community to be so united, to be so one. Even though they're so diverse and so different and so multi-ethnic, I want you to be so one that when the world looks on you, they believe in me. Our unity has an evangelistic, missional, and apologetic purpose. You see, when the world looks on our community, Jesus says, I want them to see something different. You know, when you look at our world today, I mean, one of the things that people struggle with is how our differences divide us, isn't it? I mean, even back in the 90s, I remember when I, remember there were the, the L.A. riots uh, way back then. There was all this sort of uh, racial division in the country. Uh, and Rodney King, you remember he got on the screen, the television screen, and some of you who are, who are of a certain age know what he said. He asked a question to the nation. What did he say? Can't we all just get along? Gosh, what is wrong? Can't we all just get along? 
What's wrong with us? What's going on with us that we cannot get together? More recently, I read an article in the New York Times where the guy was lamenting how our differences are still dividing us, except for this time more along political lines. He talked about the last election. And he said, he said, there were people in my family that didn't talk to one another anymore because of how they voted. And he says, it's not, not that just that we, that we vote differently and we think differently. He says, we disdain people because of our differences. He says, we are divided as a country along political lines. We cannot stand people who think differently than ourselves. This happens even on a, in, in, in a personal level. So marriages break down parent and children relationships break down. And I have one friend who's a psychologist, and he says, if I could sum up all marital breakdown in one word, this is what it would be. Difference. It is so hard for us to to love and be united with people that are radically different. But here what Jesus is saying is that in the church, it, it ought to be different. We ought to exhibit a different sort of community. As Tim Keller puts it, he says, one of the most crucial ways that the Christian church embodies the gospel is in the unity of Christians who are different from one another, economically, culturally, racially. In general, the job of the church is to show the world that people who cannot live in love and unity outside the church or outside of Christ can do so in Christ. And so in the church, they ought to see people who could never get along out there, never trump people, and people who have a bumper sticker that, say, that says, build the wall. Black and white, Asian, Hispanic. Like when they look at our community, they ought to see something different. They ought to be something different. There, there ought to be an inclusion here. We ought not to have exclusion here. Uh, You know, Gandhi at one point was asked, why don't you believe in Jesus? Uh, You know, Gandhi at one point read uh, all the Sermon on the Mount. He loved the Sermon on the Mount. And somebody asked him, why don't you, why why aren't you a Christian? Why don't, why do you reject Christ? And he replied this way. He said, oh, I don't reject Christ. I love Christ. It's just that so many of you Christians are so unlike Christ. If Christians would really live according to the teachings of Christ as found in the Bible, all of India would be Christian today. In other words, he's saying a divided church cannot heal the wounds of a divided world. Right? It's our it's our community. It's our unity and diversity. It's a community where, yeah, we're different. Of course we're different. There's so many of us who are radically different, and yet our differences don't divide us. That's the thing, right? We don't elevate our differences to such a point where we use them to exclude and disdain other people. We are unity and diversity, just like the Trinity, and it's a foretaste of heaven. It's a foretaste. It's like a little preview to people of what's to come, and it can be incredibly attractive, And so Jesus says, this is why this is so important. I I want you to be one, because when you are one, people believe. It's the greatest argument for the Christian faith. Well, let's ask the question then, how can we be one? Uh, what What is the power that we have to achieve this sort of unity? Because we need it, don't we? I mean, this is, it's easy to talk about, you know, but this is so hard to do. This is so hard to do. 
And there's something very natural in us where we want to just be with people that are like us. How do we achieve a unity and diversity? Well, notice in a sense, Jesus says we don't achieve it at all. This is something that God achieves for us. This is a prayer. This is not an exhortation. Be one. Go out and be one. This is Jesus praying to the Father saying, God, you make them one. You are the one, Lord, that, that achieves this unity. This is a unity only achieved by the power of the Holy Spirit through the death and resurrection of Jesus. One of the things that Jesus does in the death and resurrection is not only heal the vertical relationship between God and man, God and humanity, Jesus Christ brings a healing on the horizontal level. Right? It's not just God and, and us that it's brought together. It's the Jews and the Gentiles who are like oil and water in the first century. The, the cross brings, it breaks down the, the wall of hostility that divides us, and it brings a unity on the deepest possible level, level and it unites us. And so God, is, God achieves this unity. He imparts this unity. But how does he do it? Well, let's look back at the passage. He says here that they, they all may be one, this is verse 21, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. And then he says in verse 22, this is so important, he says, the glory that you have given to me, I have given it to them. Why? So that they may be one, even as we are one. He sa Jesus says, God, the glory that you've given me, I have now given it to my followers. Why have I done that? So that they may be one even as we are one. In other words, the way Jesus creates the unity among us is by sharing his glory with us. Glory. Understanding the glory that you have in Jesus is one of the strongest ways that we can heal our divisions with one another. In Philippians 2, uh, Paul is talking about, he's Paul, the Apostle Paul is an early church theologian, and he's writing to a church that's all divided. There are two leaders in the church specifically that were divided. And he says, I want you all to be united. He says, I want you to be in one accord, which means not only that he wants them, or not that he wants them to be in a, the same automobile. Get it? I know, I know, it's bad. He says, I want you to be one accord. <laughs> I want you to be one. That was bad, I know. I want you to be, yeah, someone agreed. I want you to be one. I want you to be united. And he says, the root of all your divisions, he says, is something called vainglory. What is vainglory? We're literally in Greek, it's, it means empty glory. He says, your glory empty. And because your glory empty, this is causing all your division. What does it mean to be glory empty? It means that you are insecure at the core of your being. You don't know your glory. You're empty of glory at the core. You know, you feel lack when it comes to your identity and who you are and your self-worth and whether you're truly loved. You're glory empty. And because you're glory empty, you are causing all sorts of division because when you're glory empty, you begin to look for glory in your distinctions. You start looking for glory in your race or you start looking for glory in your economic status. Yes, I am somebody because I make this amount of money. Or you start looking for glory in your, your uh, education level. Yes, I, I am somebody, I, I am important because I've got, gotten to this certain level and I have this degree that's up on my wall. When your glory empty, you start to look for things about yourself to, to make you feel better, to make you feel worth it. 
And when you do that, you always cause division. Whenever you put your identity in your race, for example, you're going to disdain other races. Whenever you put your identity in your education level, you're going to look down at people that don't have that same education level. When you're glory empty, you find your identity in your differences. And when you do that, it always causes division, and you're no longer in one accord. But Jesus says, here's the gospel. I've given them my glory. I've filled them up with my glory so that they may be one. When you know how glorious you are in Jesus, when you go go into all of your relationships full of glory, boy, that is a force for healing. So look at the person next to you and say, you are glorious. Now look at the person next to you and say, you look marvelous. You know, Saturday Night Live, there was a skit where a person stood before a mirror and they said, uh, this poor insecure uh, girl, and she looked in front of the mirror and she said, I am smart, I am good looking, and doggone it, people like me. And it's kind of silly, isn't it? But I think there is something to understanding what you really look like before God. And if you could look in the mirror and say, I am an ingredient in the divine happiness. I am glorious because of what Jesus Christ has done. I am not just a sinner. The truest thing about me is that I am justified. I am righteous. I am beautified. I have glory. When you go into your relationships like this, it has a, a, a way of healing your divisions. And so Jesus says you need to know your glory. You need to know that you are justified. You need to stop looking for your identity and self-worth in anything other than Jesus Christ. And when you do that, you, you find yourself united to other people, even who are very, very different. I'm not looking for my identity and my education level or my degrees or my ethnicity or social class or anything else. I'm, I'm finding my identity and my glory in Jesus Christ, just like you. And because of that, even though we're very, very different, We are one. The nature of our unity is unity and diversity. The reason for our unity is evangelistic. The way we become unified or the power of our unity is glory. Knowing your glory. Let me apply it before we stop here. Three things I want you to do this week. Three things I want you to do. Uh, first, what I want you to do is I, is I want you to resist division. You know, all of us have a natural tendency to do this. And I would wager that in all of our lives right now, there is some rupture. There is some threat to unity. There is something going on. And, and what, what, what this shows us is that unity is so crucial. Reconciliation and relationship is at the heart of the gospel. If you are breaking fellowship and dividing with somebody else, this is a very serious issue. This is the last prayer that Jesus prayed. When Christ's body is divided, pray tell who bleeds. Right? This, is, this is so important. And, and you've got the power to be united. You know, the New Testament says that we are one. Paul at one point says, Don't, he says, you are one. And he says, therefore, maintain the unity in the bond of peace. 
You already are one. What unites us is stronger than what divides us, but work towards unity. If you are drifting away from somebody, which is your natural tendency in some way in your life, do not let it happen. Unity is so crucial. It's at the heart of the gospel. Second thing I want you to do is make room for the other. Make room for the other. You know, there are others in your life, people that believe differently than you, people that vote differently than you. And at the heart of the gospel is making room in your life for the other. Don't just be friends with people that are just like you. There's no power in that, at least not much. Look for people that are different and bring them in. Even in this room, I mean, this is a pretty monochromatic room, but there are differences here. There are theological differences. Some of you are Calvinists. Some of you are Arminianists. Some of you are pre-tribulationists. Some are post-tribulationists. Some of you are pre-millennial, and some of you are mid-millennial and post-millennial, and some of you have no idea what I'm even talking about right now. There are Christian liberty differences. Some of you have strong convictions against drinking alcohol. You would never touch a beer. Some of you brew it in your basement. I know. I know. There are educational differences in this room. Uh, Some of you are public schoolers. Some of you are private schoolers. Some of you are Montessori schoolers. Some of you are homeschoolers. And even among homeschoolers, some of you are Charlotte Mason. And others of you are raising kids God's way. I mean, (laughs) we are different. There are personality differences in this room. Some of you are ENF. P's on the Enneagram or on, in the Myers-Briggs. Some of you are INTJs. Some of you are Enneagram 4. Some of you are Enneagram 9. And some of you hate the Enneagram. That means you're an Enneagram 8, by the way. <laughs> right? We, we, we are different. But we are one. Make room for the other. The power of God is at large in the world. The power of God is working in the world. And one of the things that God's power does is brings us together. Make room for people that are different. You know, if you're a hardcore Republican, maybe have lunch this week with a Democrat. Final thing, I want you to remember your glory. Remember your glory. Jesus Christ died to to justify you. You know, normally we think about Jesus taking things away, like taking away our sin or taking away our guilt or taking away our shame. But have you ever considered what Jesus has put on you? Jesus Christ has put his glory on you. He has justified you. He has made you righteous. He loves you just as much as he loves his own dear son. Look in the mirror maybe and say, I am glorious. My identity is not in how much money I make or what degree I have. My identity is rock solid. It is rooted in grace. You are loved by God. You are a child of God. And you'd be shocked at how confident and strong that makes you to go into the world and embrace people who are different. This is what our world needs. This is the last prayer that King Jesus prayed. This is what our Lord wants for us, that we would be one even as he is one. Unity and diversity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this passage where you teach us about uh, what's important, uh, what, what you've come to do, why, why you're here in this world, and, 
God, you are creating a community. You're a community-forming God. And not just any community, but a community of inclusion, a community where people who are radically different and would never get along in the world are now living together in peace, where the wall of hostility is broken down, where we could unite with one another on the deepest level. Help us to make room for one another. God, I pray that there would be harmony and unity in this church. God, I pray that you would unite us to ourselves, and I pray that we would sense a unity, a bond, a fellowship with one another. And I pray that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen.